When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the 300th edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, John Cross of the Daily Mirror, and Seb Stafford-Bloor from Tifo Football. New Year, same old dilemma. Frank Lampard is under enormous pressure at Chelsea. Has he reached the point of no return? Logically, he deserves time and respect. But patience isn't exactly woven into Chelsea's DNA. Lampard's status as a club legend offers scant protection. Now, John, you've been with us on the pod from day one. You were at the bridge on Sunday... Give us a sense of the mood. Can you actually see the manager surviving? (laughs) I would say any other club and perhaps in any other season. And I do still think we should look at this upon as as an unprecedented, unique season for all the challenges and difficulties. Then I would really fear for Frank Lampard right now. And then also, I guess, you know, you'd have a full Stanford Bridge and the Chelsea fans are definitely beginning to question, they're beginning to turn. I don't think they've completely turned, don't get me wrong. But yeah, I, I do think the pressure is on, on Frank Lampard. I personally think that's that's harsh and, that, uh, and that's wrong. I think he's been in the job, now he's into his second season. We're not even at the halfway point for his second season. In his first season, they, they reach top four, they get into the cup final, the start of uh, of his second season, they spend two hundred million pounds on players, and that pushes up expectation levels. Which, let's be honest, it was unrealistic to ex- to expect anything else than sky high expectation levels at Stamford Bridge. That's how they work under Roman Abramovich, and and they've been incredibly successful with it. But I do think it I do think it's it's harsh right now for Frank Lampard to f- to be feeling that that sort of heat. Do I think he's in immediate danger? I don't personally. I think the early warning signs are there, but I think that basically will be given a little bit more time. I think he should be given a bit more time. I think that basically, bearing in mind earlier in the season, he's been on a 16-game unbeaten run. I think they could have had an opportunity to to perhaps go top and then make it sort of pull pull away clear. And then they were lost at Wolves. And I think it's four defeats in six games or one win in six Pick your worst stat, whichever you prefer. But a month or so ago, I was on a press conference where he's being asked about what good job he was doing. What about a new contract for him? So I just think that things turn around so, so quickly. I think the worry is defensively, again, that they, they look poor. I think there's a lack of cohesion there. Some of the big signings 
are really underperforming for him. I think we've seen only brilliant bits of Zayic. I think Werner looks either tired, short of confidence, or a real lack of form, which which is a major, major worry. Kai Havertz, I, I still don't know quite where he fits in this Chelsea system. And, and those are sort of the issues, I think, that basically are as concerning, perhaps, as the results. Is he making the best of of the big-name signings, but I really genuinely believe that he should be given time. Yeah, I suppose, Seb, it, it boils down to what type of club Chelsea want to be, doesn't it? You know, if they bring in a big name after sacking Lampard, and, you know, already we've got Allegri being mentioned, Thomas Tuchel, Brendan Rodgers even, even Pochettino, you know, did he jump a week too soon to go to PSG? We've got all that speculation around, which is probably inevitable given the febrile nature of the modern game. But if they do bring in another big name or supposed big name, won't that signal another era of ignoring the academy and a complete 360? Yeah, I I think it probably would, Mike. I think the difficulty, especially in modern football, is that increasingly supporters want to pray at the altar of, a, of an idologue. They want someone to believe in, they want someone with a, a track record. And that kind of mentality doesn't preclude a manager from picking youth players, but it's not the era of patience. And you, with, with a youth player, with a, an academy graduate, you have to be allowed, you know, uh, six month cycles. Player has to, you know, be in good form, has to slump, much like Mason Mount did last season. I think one of the problems for Lampard now is that the club have, have acquired what is a very, very expensive German core and some of the best managers in Europe who are available right now are also German. And so that's a threat to him. If you think, I mean, they're not probably going to make a run at Julian Nagelsmann in the middle of a season, but, you know, he would probably be available within about six months' time. Thomas Tuchel obviously is a free agent. There are others knocking about. And part of the problem for Lampard is an underperforming set of German internationals who are extremely talented. And that's very difficult. And I think that if you start a a new era as a club, do supporters care that much anymore? I mean, they should. I mean, but it feels almost like if you give them something else to believe in, which you would if you installed a Tuchel with his his philosophy, with his track record at Dortmund and to a lesser extent Paris Saint-Germain, all of a sudden there's this kind of textured CV that people can grasp, which Lampard doesn't have. So I don't think it's that much of an obstacle. To John, though, isn't it? It's not as simple, is it, as throwing more money at a problem, though probably rice would help them. And it also points up the influence of, of, of a manager like Frank Lampard in the whole recruitment process. Do you think he had any say, real say, in the sort of kids in a sweet shop approach that they, they had this summer? Well, I mean, if, if we look at Declan Rice as a target, then, then I think that's definitely a Frank Lampard target. So I, th- I think he's in the conversation. If you remember sort of when Timo Werner arrived, there was a lot of talk about, you know, Frank Lampard being heavily involved in, in luring him to Stamford Bridge. And we shouldn't overlook the fact that Werner started well. But I, I just think, to me, Werner, I, I think when I've seen him at his best for, for, for Leipzig, it was a combination of playing down the middle and then wide. And there seems to be this now this debate whether sort of they're wasting Werner wide. He's not very happy there, and that's why we're not seeing the best out of him. Well, he, he did do both roles, and he did. I thought when Chelsea signed him, they were signing a brilliant striker and forward because he could play equally effectively 
and would be comfortable doing both roles through the middle and also perhaps wider of, of, of a three. And we all know that wide of a three doesn't necessarily mean playing on the wing. It just means wide of a front three. You know, it's just it's just it's just it's just a different way. So I, I, I just think that he was involved in that process. Yeah. And I think that, that Chilwell has been a good signing. I mean, he had a really poor game against Sterling, didn't he, to be honest. And Sterling, you know, tore him apart, I think, to be honest. But I, I think when we talk about Declan Rice, they could do with the Declan Rice. Well, they've got an N'Golo Kante. And N'Golo Kante has, for the last, what, four or five years, been arguably the best anchorman in, in the Premier League and one of, if not the best, in Europe. And, and at the moment, he's just not looking like the same old N'Golo Kante. That was evidence when, when Sterling broke free and, 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 and frankly, Chelsea were a bit of an indisciplined mess. And Mendy, I think, that was definitely heavily influenced by, by Lampard and Petr Cech. So I think he's had uh, I think he's had input there. So it's not exactly done without his say so. Which I guess if he's had input in signings that are, uh, that are not doing so well brings his own pressures. But but I just I just think he need, just needs time. I mean Havertz is clearly a, a, a phenomenal talent, but aren't we stuck in this age old English problem, which makes us look so antiquated and old fashioned? We're, we're desperately looking for this kind of pigeonhole to put. Havertz in, and I still don't think we Chelsea haven't found yet his best position in that system, because I think that I think they want to play a four. It might end up being a three to to get Havertz in, but they haven't certainly haven't got the best out of him yet. Yeah, well, I suppose we have to also mention that he's he has struggled with COVID as well, mm. hasn't he? That was one of the games, the City games, where you looked at a certain players and you you almost saw them contemplating retirement in front of you you know as Piliqueta <laughs> with 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 Foden he couldn't deal with his pace or his movement Thiago looked rash and out position a lot that's the issue isn't it they still really not got the optimal defense have they yeah and it, it shows in different ways as well Mike obviously uh, Thiago Silva was I wouldn't say embarrassed by Gundogan but I mean was made to look my age, basically, by Gundogan um, for goal one. I thought Phil Foden was absolutely brilliant. I mean, as Azpilicueta did not have a good game, but I thought Foden was exceptional. And I think you could see that by Pep Guardiola's reaction to him when he substituted him. To me, Mike, like that defensive thing, that lack of structure, I think it shows in transition. I mean, some of the some of the sort of the movements from back to front by City were very slick and very watchable, but from a defensive perspective, really hard to justify. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we all had our fun with that Denver Bar goal that Man United conceded out mm. in Turkey? I mean, you know, De Bruyne's goal, it's it's pretty much a carbon copy. And how I don't I don't care how good a player N'Golo Kante is, and he is in, in in many ways in the past, he's been kind of worth two holding players in one body. You can't allow a player to be in that situation against players like Sterling, Foden, De Bruyne. That's just that's asking for trouble. And so when we talk about defence, we're, we're thinking about like centre-halves, you know, position of fullbacks, and that's all a, a stick with which to beat Lampard. But that transitional stuff, I mean, it's kind of become a, a buzzword of, of the modern game. But if you look at how contemporary coaches manage that side of possession and being out of possession that's really where they earn their supper. And that was alarming yesterday. It was, uh, yeah, very hard to defend. Yeah, if you look at City, John, I think it's seven unbeaten now. They're obviously gathering momentum. Guardiola 
okay, he's had 29 trophies. They speak for themselves. There's almost a sudden motivation now to extend his career. You know, he's talking about evidence that he's become a better manager in what is his fifth season at City. Do you go along with that? And why do you think suddenly he's gone from saying, you know, we've got burnout issues, I'll be out the game by 50, to actually saying, yeah, I'm going to hear, I'm here, I'm going to see this job through? I, I, the, the only thing I can, I mean, blimey, signing a new contract has got to do something with it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but you, you know, so that's got to be a, a, a driving force of it. But I think when managers do talk like that, I think it's got to come from a belief in the players and the players, what they do for him. And I'll be perfectly honest, I, I thought fairly soon after he'd signed that new contract that I was thinking, what has City done here? Because you won't find a bigger fan of Guardiola than me. I mean, he, he's in my eyes, he's restructured and, 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 and rethought out the way that we play in this country. I mean, he's been phenomenal, the influence that he's had on English football. And I was just beginning to wonder, I thought, blimey, I, I thought one TV commentator summed it up brilliantly. I, I think it was during the West Ham game, which I think they eventually drew, but, but you know, had the chances to win. You, you're almost watching a kind of a Man City tribute act. They look like Man City, they sort of kind of sound like Man City, but don't quite play as, as well as them, you know. And it's and it felt like that. And and I just think that the, the signing of Ruben Diaz shouldn't be underestimated. I think they signed a no-nonsense proper defender there that, that suddenly made them look solid and suddenly given John Stones his mojo back because Stones is playing with a belief and a confidence that he's got a real defender alongside him. And it's interesting, isn't it? Laporte might struggle to get his place back, even when he's fully, fully fit. And, and it just gives them a base, I, I think, that, that, that really, that they were without arguably their first choice two full-backs, and yet they still have a sort of a structure around their defence. And I just think it's the players that, that perhaps have given that, that belief back. And I was the first to say, I don't think they did enough in the window, because I don't think they signed a proper player to move on from Aguero, a real successor, I should say, for, for Aguero. So I still think there's gaps there. But I looked at them yesterday and I really felt that this is that this is a Man City, the best that I've seen them since those back-to-back title wins. They're really in this title race. And I have no doubt if Guardiola is suddenly re-evaluating where his career is and where he's going with Man City, it's because of, of just how good Man City are right now. Well, they certainly look rested, do you give any credence to the conspiracy theories, uh, Seb? <laughs> no, I, I don't, Mike. And you know what? Also, I I find it quite distasteful that we, given the times we live in and the situations we're all trying to deal with, that at any given opportunity where where a, a football club errs on the side of caution, you've got kind of an, an army of people suggesting that you know cancellations are being. Yeah, well, the fix just is being manipulated, put it that way. I think also uh, after the last nine months that we've all had, I think I've had my fill of conspiracy yeah. theories. So I think I think my tolerance is quite low. <laughs> because on on that, you know, we are in unique times. John, you were there when Pep was speaking afterwards. In what, to me, as as, as an observer, uh, an external observer, you were there, was a really tone deaf defence of Benjamin Mandy. Does he need to look outside the football bubble here? Yeah, he he absolutely does. I I, I was staggered, frankly. I, I was really, really surprised. Bearing in mind, 
you know, not only do I have a huge amount of respect for, for Guardiola, Guardiola's been personally hit by by, by this pandemic, mm. by this tragedy, losing a close relative. And I, I was ever so surprised at, at that because I, I think it's indefensible. I mean, it's all well and good to say, oh, it's kind of wasn't wasn't a New Year's party, and 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 you know, it, he's a good guy, and 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 Guardiola offering a defence. But the fundamental fact is that we all know we all know the rules, we all know the crisis facing this country right now, and and I'd like to think that everyone listening, and and I know for sure that I have been incredibly careful, and yet here we are with a footballer bringing people in that he's not allowed to do. It's an extravagance that he's not allowed to do. He clearly thinks, like the Spurs players and, and, and Lanzini from West Ham before him, thinks he's above all that. I mean, a couple of Palace captain and Mitrovic from Fulham getting together. Where, where are they coming from on this? Footballers clearly think they're above the rules. And it really, really annoys me. And, you know, football's been given special dispensation by the government, like elite sport. And, and they're taking it for granted. And and basically, I know that the Premier League are frustrated. The Premier League have written to, to clubs to, to urge them to remind the players. I think the FA are looking on thinking, wish we could do something and they can't really. It's the, it's the league that enforced the protocols. And the government must be thinking, well, if they're setting a bad example that, that, that makes society think that's acceptable, then maybe we should perhaps think again about football being a special case. And, and then you get Pep Guardiola, one of the most respected voices in the game, defending the player i just don't i just didn't understand where it was coming from really i thought it was it was an appalling story and then also an appalling lack of judgment really on on, on guardiola's part i didn't agree with it at all i thought it was really surprised me that from guardiola because when he speaks we listen and i thought it was a, it was a it was a strange statement to make well it was equally i think surprising when you know roy hodgson excused his captain's behaviour and basically said fans are more concerned about winning matches. You know, I know it's a difficult, almost problem of protocol, but I think it's seven Premier League players in the last couple of days are alleged to have breached COVID rules. Surely the FA, if they mean anything and if they have any power, which frankly I'm beginning to, to doubt, surely they should think about banning these players, shouldn't they? Yeah, I, I, I think so, Mike. I think that's right. I think you have to set a precedent and to make example of people. I mean, we are, as you say, we're, we're nine months into this and this is still happening. In the beginning, when there were a few mixed messages and when people were still adjusting to what life under COVID was like, you could kind of make a defence. You can't now because everyone knows the rules. For me, though, I, I think I think the example has to be set earlier in the process. Whether the FA has the authority to impact this situation, I don't know. But certainly when managers talk and when clubs react to how their players have behaved, that is far more impactful on fans and it sets a, I don't know, it's just a, a stronger statement. So for instance, I, I I agree with Crossy entirely about the Guardiola situation. I, it was very bizarre to hear him say what he did. Equally, I thought Jose Mourinho was very strong on this. I think it's very effective for someone like Mourinho to for want of a, a better expression, to throw a couple of his players under the bus, rightly so. Sergio Reguilón let his club down, let himself down, let his managers and his teammates down. Eric Lamella did the same thing and has quite rightly been sat down for tomorrow's League Cup semi-final. The clubs have to be the one to to make the statement because they have the loudest voice of all, like particularly the managers. And so when 
when a player does ignore the regulations, when they do behave as if football is a special case and we can do what we want, then the uh, the message has to be unequivocal. Football, it's, it's bizarre that football still hasn't got a handle on this. They still don't quite understand how the public react. It's, it's very, very strange. We're nearly a year into it. Mm. You mentioned the League Cup semi-finals this midweek. John, Manchester United, Manchester City at Old Trafford on Wednesday. How important do you think that game is in the context of the season? I think that every game is absolutely huge for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in that. I'm coming from the basis that, that frankly, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is, is in crisis or, or, or going to win the title within the space of each 90 minutes. <laughs> it's just astonishing. <laughs> I can't think of another club like it. And it's just... I, and, and I know it's the League Cup and I know it's the Carabao Cup and, and, and it's a different competition. But if City win and thrash them, then the, the the basic the fallout is is what does this mean for Solskjaer? Is Solskjaer still the right choice if they miss the boat in Maurizio Pochettino? And that and that is life for Solskjaer, who who by the way you know as we speak now at Liverpool, they're basically on level on points with Liverpool. I mean it's just it, it it's the most bizarre thing because. I have to say, earlier points in the season, look at the. I was looking at United and Solskjaer crashing out the Champions League, and they made a, an awful start, didn't they? Really, and and we were questioning is Solskjaer the right man? And and frankly, some of the performances haven't been great. They nicked it against Wolves. It wasn't a great game. I thought that the, that the win over Villa was was a really big win for for Solskjaer, but and Villa are a really good side, particularly away from home. So that's a big. Big victory for them, but it wasn't completely free-flowing and fluent at times, but albeit a really good win. And then I just think that, that suddenly it's City and then the focus is back on on United again. So I, I don't think we should ever underestimate it. I also think the other, the other aspect is that Solskjaer has spoken a lot about being a losing semi-finalist and wanting to go one step further and needing to address that and finally delivering a trophy being the nearly men last season in, in, in semi-finals, which which they were. And I just think that they do need to address that. And, and, and beating City would be a huge lift for United. And that's why I think it's it, it's vital for, for Solskjaer. And I think it's a huge game. Yeah, well, they are nine points better off after 16 Premier League games compared to last season. You know, we can debate how that actually is the case. Do you think this is the key month for United, Seb, you know, given that they've got league games at Liverpool and Arsenal, I suppose we should all go on hype alert for uh, the January 17th game at Anfield, shouldn't we? Yeah, we should, <clears throat> especially this season, Mike, because we've seen that all it takes is like a three-game run of form and you're either in mid-table or you're second or third. Like really this season we've had, we've had Chelsea up there, we've had Spurs up there, we've had Everton who are still up there, Leicester, and then now Man United. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think I think you see what you want with Solskjaer. Like if you're someone that thinks he is a little bit overpromoted or is fortunate to be in a situation, then you're going to fixate on the kind of the the boom bust nature of the results, the penalties, the Bruno Fernandez effect, those kind of things. If you're someone who you know wants to look in another direction, then you see the like the different combinations, the you know the slight improvement in defence, the development of individual players, the ability to to get a little bit of a tune out of Paul Pogba, things like that. So it's kind of 
it's an unwinnable argument. I mean, it's not as if football needed another unwinnable argument that we all drone on about, you know, <laughs> week after week. But it, it, it is that. So if anyone's waiting, I mean, that, that, that game at Liverpool is massive. But if anyone's waiting for a kind of a silver bullet, an argument ending game, it's just never going to happen with him. Unless, you know, something ridiculous happens, like he, you know, wins a, like a domestic treble or something. I, I don't know. But it's, it's a... It's a really difficult situation because no matter what happens at Man United, it's just going to always going to be so much noise. The conversation's never going to end. It's always going to be boom bust. It's always going to be an overreaction in one way or another. And he's kind of caught in that cycle. And actually, one of the ways to look at it is maybe, maybe to his credit, he's been a fairly consistent personality. He's never lost his temper, really. He's had a few bristly moments with some questions in the past, but he's never lost his cool. He's never overreacted some of the rhetoric became a little bit thick at times and the kind of the the fergusonisms were a little bit labored but he's handled himself pretty well as a person yeah well you know if we're talking about sagas i suppose paul pogba features in quite a few of them did you think john that he will leave in the summer and if so is that almost a win-win for his agent mino raiola in other words he gets a percentage for selling him he will probably get a percentage for bringing someone like Haaland in. Modern football? <laughs> yeah, it feels like it, doesn't it? Look, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a rare breed in this. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a massive Pogba fan. And I actually think that, I mean, there is a massive frustration, even from my part, who loves to watch Paul Pogba, the entertainer. And that, that it is obvious that, that basically he's not really fulfilled the expectation or, or potential during his his time at Man United. He's in his fifth season now. We're approaching five five years. And when you look back upon it, what a superstar signing it was. £89 million. He's, during, the, during that time, he's won the World Cup. He's, he's reached incredible levels. And yet he doesn't seem to have replicated that on a regular basis, consistent basis for Man United. And yet I do... I did see on, on, on the Villa game on, on, on Friday night a Paul Pogba that was... Enjoyed being centre of attention. He won the penalty. He did, and 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 I thought it was a penalty. He knew exactly what he was doing. By the way, could talk about all day long about the kind of the the, the whys and the rights and wrongs of the decision, but he knew what he was doing. And I have to say, I'm I'm in the camp that thought that it was quite clever because he was teasing D- Douglas Lewis. He really was, and thinking, right, I need to get something for my team. So you could make a strong case that Paul Pogba's gone and won that game for United. Because he, he thought, well, I've got to go and salvage something here for the team. And he's won that penalty. And, 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 and sure enough, United have gone on to win the game. And he, look, look I, he, he clearly enjoys being a centre of attention. He, he's, a, he's a massive superstar. And I think he will go. And I do think that that is the sort of the state of, of the nation right now. It has to be a business decision for United. And, and yeah, whoever comes up with Haaland now, whether that's United or, or whoever, will be signing... A, a, another future superstar, frankly. But United, if they do it, they'll be thinking, well, we should have just done it first time around. And that'll teach us not to deal with you know, Riola, which is what they what, didn't want to do first time around, and which is why they want, wanted to miss out. So basically, the lesson in here is, if you want the biggest names, if you, if you want the biggest stars, then you have to deal with Mino Riola. And say what you like, but Mino Riola is very, very, very good for his players. Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm not winning you over, am I? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, okay. Well, what about Liverpool, Seb? You know, let's look beyond you know the relatively poor run they've they've had because they're they're pretty much a feature of the season, aren't they? How do you think they're placed in terms of personnel? Do you think they'll strengthen this month? Nah, not this month. I don't. I don't think it's a particularly good market. I mean, they. The one exception to that might be France because of the media pro situation there and because of the turmoil French clubs are um, are suffering through. A lot of the talent in those clubs is essentially low-hanging fruit. It's there for the There's taking. lots of bargains going, going there, you know. Absolutely. A lot of a lot of French clubs that are looking to English clubs to, to you know, take something out of their wage bill, maybe drop 10, 15 million pounds. It'd be very, very helpful for some of those clubs. Unfortunate situation, but you know, other football clubs are always going to take advantage of that kind of scenario. In terms of sort of anything high profile, it would surprise me. And I'm also, I'm, I'm not sure where they would do that kind of business. I mean, where in their first 11 they would do it. Diogo Yota has been a, an excellent signing. I know he had a little bit of an injury. Well, I mean, we still haven't, you know, we've barely seen Thiago and we don't need to wait. We know he's a brilliant player. Defence, I, I still think over time, it, Virgil van Dijk is going to need a partner, a proper partner, someone that... Um, Someone that can be relied on physically. I think Joe Gomez is an excellent footballer, but he is a he's fragile. John Matip again has um, has suffered injury, so I I don't know. I, I just don't think that January. I don't think that January is the right market for them to sign anything other than a prospect for someone that's gonna you know a 22, 23 year old who's gonna need a couple of years to develop. Do 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 Liverpool need that kind of player at the moment? Need is it's the wrong word. They they could do with it, and it would be nice, but. <clears throat> I don't see them improving their side via that route. So for me, it's a no, Mike. Do, do you know what? If I could, if I could just jump in there, you know what? I, I totally agree with with with, with Seb on that, and and all logic tells us that basically, you know, it should be a a prospect. But the one thing is, I just think that that, that with Liverpool is that suddenly from time to time, as as it did, look look for for a few clubs arguing in, in the end, it didn't happen. That a bizarre one could come from left field, like a Jerome Boateng. And suddenly be available, yeah, offered on loan. That's true. And and listen, I'm not saying that you know that's just a name plucked out of the air. I'm not saying that Boateng's going to Liverpool or anything like that. But sometimes you'll find that defender who's not playing, who's come out of left field, who's got a good pedigree, who just wants a six month loan, particularly with the Euros this summer. And I just think that that has got to be an answer because otherwise, I just think it's going to be a long, hard test for Liverpool because I think Liverpool should win the Premier League title in my view. But I just think defensively that it's such a worry. It's such an issue for, for, for Liverpool. And they'll go on conceding goals and, and dropping silly points simply because they're clearly without their best two centre-halves in, in, in Van Dijk and Gomez. You know what's really interesting, guys? It's like, obviously, most of the major clubs around Europe would have expected fans to be mm. back by now. I mean, I know you. I know nobody would have put in a hard budget for this kind of thing for a situation which is so fluid. But a lot of clubs would have thought, right, Christmas twenty twenty. You know, maybe not full house, but we'll have maybe twenty five, thirty thousand back. You'd wonder whether in January there's going to be quite a lot of agents or intermedi- intermediaries who've been set, who've been tasked with finding a way of alleviating wage budget issues. So you're going to get players who ordinarily would never be available. Who you know, for six months a year. You know, someone's been given the instruction, right, we need that 150 grand a week off our wage bill for a little bit of time just to ease the pressure. So that kind of deal might not even just be for Liverpool, even even clubs sort of further down the food chain. Those kind of players are going to be available probably at a, at a, at a you know, at a, a lesser cost than usual. Yeah, well, I suppose it all does boil down to the old 
issue of recruitment, doesn't it? And I suppose in that sense, John, Leicester are exemplars, aren't they? They're third, very softly, softly approach. Their recruitment's been terrific. You know, Fafana's probably the latest one. They've got the Reliables, Vardy, Albrighton, Kasper Speichel had his 500th game at the weekend. Where are we with their challenge, do you think? <laughs> it was interesting. Before before the game, I was at Stamford Bridge yesterday and, and, and like a lot of clubs, they're sort of struggling really to accommodate all the press and so to random sort of spread out across the ground. And a few of us journalists were sort of grouped around the uh, socially distanced, of course, watching a, a TV screen behind the stand, watching the end of, of, of Newcastle Leicester. And they, they, they were just... Would saw Tielemans score that goal. And I just sort of said, Tielemans, what a player he is. What a snip. And someone did point out that, well, it was about 40 million quid, which I'd kind of <laughs> forgotten about. But actually, Leicester, they're just, their business is sensational, their recruitment. You know, they're still, still Chilwell for 50 million pounds, which I have to say I thought was actually cheaper than what they might normally get. But actually... It's a transfer window in the summer during a pandemic and they've gone and got themselves a bit of an upgrade, they would argue anyway, you know, in replacement and pocketed the cash. I mean, they just do brilliant business. While Arsenal kind of got Saliba from France, they've gone and got Fafana. Alvin Reddy, straight in, Bosch is playing fantastic. And Johnny Evans, what a sign. He signed a new contract, by the way. And when they signed him, everyone said, oh, he's finished, you know, sort of thing, basically. It's, you know, shame they didn't get him a few years earlier. They just signed him into a new contract. He's been that good. I mean, it's just sensational. The one area where I think Leicester is still an issue is obviously the striker. Jamie Vardy, if Jamie Vardy is, is absent, missing for a few games, not, not just the odd one here or there, that's an issue for Leicester. But... If Leicester keep on carrying on like this and Jamie Vardy carries on doing what he does brilliantly in in amongst the team structure, then I think that Leicester are definitely pushing for top four this season. I think it would be hard to see them win the title, but I do think that they can finish top four, which again is progression on last season. And I think they play some super stuff. I just think what a great time to be a Leicester fan right now. I just think that Brendan Rodgers, superb coach, rebuilding his, his reputation if it needed in English football. I'm not sure that it did really, but doing really good things at Leicester. I think Leicester are on the up and up and they are, when we saw sort of a ground, albeit a virtual tour of their, their new training ground, I mean, that is a club seriously going places right now. And, they, and they've got players and a manager at the helm who's taking them there, basically. Yeah. Okay. I suppose it's now time for a hospital pass. Seb, Tottenham. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> we, t- we, 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 you know, we talk about goal scorers in in the context of Leicester. There, where you've you know, Hummin Son, hundred goals for the club. I think it's twenty two goals between him and and Harry Kane this season. Give me a sort of quantify that partnership with Harry Kane. Is it one of the best in the world, if not the best? Oh, at the moment, certainly. As a as an isolated dynamic, just as a, a pure duo, without question, because you you'd really struggle to find a you know two players who complement each other in quite the same way or who have the same kind of understanding. If you look at that second goal against Leeds, you know that that's it in a nutshell, Mike. You see the timing, you see the vision, you see the anticipation. That's like one of those combinations that we used to celebrate 20, 30 years ago. We used to talk about like the the I, I know it's a bit trite, but the kind of the Sheringham Shearer dynamic. You know the way that players would read each other's movement. You know Sutton Shearer, that's another one. I think what's what's interesting is is 
what confuses the issue is it's not a it's not a traditional combination. So you wouldn't say that Son Young Min is a a number nine, nor is really Harry Kane. They're both kind of just in inverted commas attacking players, you know, forwards in the kind of the modern broad sense. And as a result, they encompass a far broader range of the pitch as well. So you see Son's effect is pretty much down the entire left side of the field, often from 60, 70 yards away from goal. Kane has become very similar. It's not unusual to see him receiving passes in his own half anymore in the centre circle. And so if you if you add all of that up, so if you add the damage they're able to do in the opposition penalty area with the way that they're able to begin moves in a counter-attacking system... And also the manner in which they complement what their head coach is currently trying to do. I mean, it's a match made in heaven. It, it, it ticks all the boxes for everybody involved, which is not the same thing as saying that Spurs are, that the rest of the Spurs side live up to, 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 to that. But it's uh, it's it's brilliant. And, and actually, one thing I'll say about Son Heung-min is when he first turned up at Spurs, I didn't really, I mean, I didn't think he had a long-term future in English football. He was obviously a very gifted player, but in terms of his effect he would play in pulses every couple of weeks he'd have a good game or he'd do something good and then he'd go missing but actually over time he has conditioned himself properly he's developed a proper understanding of his defensive responsibilities and he's shown a real determination to be a success at that club and that's hugely admirable he has become a genuinely world-class player and it actually baffles me that when Okay, it's a little bit of a, a strange time at the moment, but maybe a couple of years ago that clubs like Real Madrid and Barcelona didn't pay any attention to him. It speaks to something slightly strange in the game, I think. But um, in terms of a, uh, in terms of a, you know, a dynamic attacking player, you'd do very well to find anyone better than that. Mm. Yeah, Seb mentioned the head coach, John. Should we be resigned to periodic questioning of Mourinho's approach? Because he's not going to change, is he? No, 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 no. I think Sam mentioned the, the head coach without almost naming him, really. <laughs> this is distaste coming there. But um, no, um... he who must not be named. <laughs> um, don't, don't, don't you two put sorry, words in my mouth. Sorry, I'm not Sam, having that sorry, day on sorry. social media. That's not <laughs> fair at all. It's this, it's this age-old thing, isn't it? You know, which always fascinates me of someone looking in in that basically you, you know do you trade off a season watching pragmatic football for, for success or, or or kind of do you do you want your you know your classic free-flowing entertaining football in, in, instead and and that's the dilemma isn't it for, for Spurs fans and I think they flirted with the pragmatic we'll take it for a year if it brings the success up until maybe the Liverpool game and then Liverpool happened, and they played really well in that game, and and were unlucky to unlucky to lose, just as Jose said, obviously. And I, I just think that then then why not go for the juggler against Wolves? That that that's the baffling one. Go and win the game, and and that's the difficult one to take. And I, I, yeah, I I just think that that Mourinho, I think, and Spurs will just fall short of of a title challenge. I think they can get into the top four. And I think then they'll be looking at a domestic cup. You know, it's the semi, you know, semi-final this week, and I just I think that maybe that sort of kind of pushes them, pushes them on. But we know that that, that sort of fans of certain clubs want football to 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 match their their own philosophy and, and their trophies. And I, I actually think that shouldn't be ridiculed. That should be applauded. Really, I think it go, that goes for Tottenham or Newcastle or whichever sort of reach of the table. 
I think the fact that the, the you know football fans want want decent football to 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 watch then, and I just think at, at various points, Mourinho has flirted with it. I think that's the thing. I think that maybe maybe West Ham was a bit of a turning point when they drew three three, let a three goal lead slip, but I just think that the Mourinho that we we know love hate. Tolerate filling your gap. Basically, it, it is you know it is alive and well, and and still does things the way that he wants to. And I'm not sure that necessarily it fits with the the long term philosophy at Tottenham. But I do think it will bring them silverware. I really do. Whether it's this season or next, I think that basically he'll deliver some some trophies. What about Arsenal, Seb? Now you might not be able to win thing with win things with kids, but you can certainly rescue a season by the look of it. Emil Smith Rowe, who, you know, speaking to scouts, were, were all over him for the last couple of years. Bukayo Saka, sort of same background, same wave, wavelength. You've got Kieran Tierney, who looks to be a leader in the making, at least. There's very, very sudden, you know, it's a weird season, isn't it? So many mood swings. Arsenal feel good about themselves now, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's an attitude more than anything else. Like Smith Rowe and Saka, they're, they're great players. I mean, I, I it feels like we we've been waiting for Smith Rowe to to have a, this moment for quite a while now. But he's certainly, I mean, he, he looks a you know a very talented player. Looks like a, it's very much like a Gareth Southgate player, by the way, which is which is interesting too. But the the thing at, at Arsenal, like, I feel like it reminds me of the early days actually under Pochettino at Spurs. Arsenal fans might not like that. But that recovery hinged on a group of players who weren't perfect, who were learning as they went, but who who restored something, an unquantifiable something, to the way people felt about just watching the team. Not about the results and the winning and the losing and the place in the in the league table, but the experience of actually actually going to the stadium, not so much at the moment, but the, the experience of watching the side and you know, we you know, the the kind of the um the texture of the team almost. And so I, I, I'm less interested in, in what Arsenal can do to Sam Allardyce's West Brom because or whatever, really. But in terms of how everything feels, like if it's these players have helped to vanquish some of the suspicion that was that resided in in a different parts of that team. Like because I think that for a long time some of those Arsenal players have become really, really good at making faces and, you know, fronting up in inverted commas, whatever that actually means, you know, and acting in the way that they think they should because of the way it plays the cameras. And all of a sudden that's starting to be replaced with a little bit more substance. And that's really important. Before anything else happens, before you start worrying about qualifying for stuff or winning trophies or, you know, winning derbies, any of that, it's it's kind of it's how players behave when they wear the shirt. And Arsenal seem to have they seem to start to be almost on the verge of of, of getting that bit right. And that's you know, that's very much the the first step. It's probably unfair to link into Meza Ozil after this. John, but I, I will. Um, That's the hospital pass. That's the hospital pass. Do you think there's going to be any chance of a resolution this month? No. No. I think the only resolution that will be reached is Meza Ozil, who um, puts his foot down and says, I'm staying. And listen, I think the, the, the issue for this is, and, and sort of maybe just to sort of clarify on this, that Arsenal, what, what three and a half years ago, we were desperate to sign, re-sign a player in that contract, was so worried about him leaving, you know, stacked it up with bonus payments right until the end, loyalty payments, so to ensure that he wouldn't leave. 
so that basically it was incentivized for, for him to see out the contract. The irony of that, obviously, is what, you know, two years later in, in, into that deal and they're trying to get rid. Now, it would be pretty unprecedented for a club to pay up the bonuses in full, but they'd have to pay up the contract in, in, in full, frankly, and clubs just don't, don't you know, they'll, they'll pay to kind of reach an agreement, but they won't pay off a bonus. Although I have to say this is a unique set of circumstances whereby they can't even play the player if they're not selecting him in the Premier League and Europa League squads. And, and, and they're not going to. It's as simple as that. Come the end of the window, they won't. And I just think what a terrible end to Ozil's time at, at Arsenal. It's, it's, at times he, he was brilliantly breathtaking and, 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 and fantastic and at times incredibly frustrating but they did still sign one of the best players in the world at his time. He's won the World Cup during that time. And, and frankly, he's, he's signed a player at, at his peak from, from Real Madrid. And I think we'll look back upon his, his time at Arsenal with, with greater affection than, than, than we do now, simply because it's, it's, it's petered out so, so badly. And I still think questions should be asked as, as to how on earth at a time when we've been questioning Arsenal's midfield creativity, you still can't face to find a place for for him. Not just, not in the team, but in a twenty five man squad. I think that's I think that's utterly utterly bizarre. Almost as bizarre as his kind of pointless tweets and postings on social media after Arsenal games. I mean, it's just you know, it's embarrassing. It's comical. And it's this very, very sorry way to, to, to see out the end of, of Mesut Ozil. But they're going in a different direction. And, and as Seb mentioned, those kids are really refreshing. There's nothing like a, a, a new injection of hope for a team and a squad, like a sudden influx of, of young, homegrown players. Some of those kids are absolutely terrific, aren't they? So exciting to watch. Yeah, they certainly are. They certainly overwhelmed West Brom, as did Leeds. Do you think the Hawthorns is where the myth of Big Sam will be exposed, Seb? I don't know yet. I mean, I think in the early days of Allardyce, the way he works tends to involve swamping players with video analysis and coaching points, which sometimes can take a little bit of time to, um, they can take a little bit of time to adjust to. And so if you look back over his over his record at, you know, whichever club you, you, you care to mention, it tends to get a little bit worse first. So let's just put a pin in that and come back to it. I'm a little bit concerned by the nature of some of these defeats. The fight, the, the, the loss to Leeds was dreadful. Like you can get a little bit worse, but that's kind of, you know, that tends to involve losing 1-0 at home. Not like that. And we've just finished praising Arsenal and everything we've, we've said is, is true and fair. But at the same time, that was a pretty abject performance as well. Like Because in the snow, in the cold, and of course at the highest point in the country where it's probably, you know, as inhospitable a place as you could play a football match on a snowy day, you would have thought, cliche dictates, that Arsenal should be roughed up a little bit and yet West Brom didn't, didn't put a glove on them. And that was very, very disappointing because that's the bare minimum. Before you, you talk about improving uh, defensive standards and, you know, getting to second balls first and all the things that Allardyce is supposed to do well, you want a little bit of heart and fight in a performance and there was absolutely none in the whole of last week, actually. So... I don't know, but uh, um, I'd be worried, but we'll, we'll see. One of the consequences of Leeds winning at the Hawthorns, basically, and I want to try and bring this together now, is the whole debate about the use of social media or the abuse of social media. I thought the tweet 
by Leeds, which led to the abuse of Karen Carney, was unforgivable. Are we in danger, John, of almost overhyping the game so much now where it becomes really counterproductive? Probably, yes. I mean, I do, uh, you know, I do think there's a debate here to be had. I, I Listen, I think that Karen Carney is, is such a good pundit and, and really well-researched, and whether it's on, on, on TV or radio, I think she comes across really well and is, is one of my favourite, should we say, new voices sort of in, in, in the business, if you, if you like, because she's got something to say, an input, and sometimes comments with an edge, basically. And I actually think that's great. I think that's really good to have sort of strong opinions. But then it, equally, my only thought on the on the Leeds thing, and I know this, you know, won't go down well with, with everyone concerned, is that basically if, if she's had something strong to say about Leeds, then I do think Leeds have probably got a right to reply and in the age of social media where it's jokey and, 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 and funny, then I actually think that basically what Leeds did, I, I think, was OK. Where I thought it was incredibly wrong was that the, the, the sort of people jumping on that, whether that be Leeds fans or, or, or neutrals or whoever, or sexist, misogynist, outdated people were jumping on that and making shocking comments. But should Leeds have been aware that that would definitely happen? Well, I don't know that they were so, sort of saying, you know, it's an open invitation to go and abuse um, but surely, and, but surely, John, the nature of social media, it, you, you know, that showed at, at best a basic misunderstanding of the the power, which can be positive, but it also can be negative of social media. I thought it was extraordinary that the owner came out and actually backed the social media team who did that, because you know it was it was obvious to anyone who has any. Ex- experience of social media and we all have we've all been abused ourselves Mm. i just cannot see how that was even thought about well look i i I, as i say i i think that what you know i think her opinions are really really good and strong Mm. and then basically what 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 do we expect you know if if a leeds player or the manager had been asked about it which often happens are we then saying that basically then that that wouldn't isn't fair game then to report that or tweet that, and I think that often happens. But the difference, obviously, I understand it's coming from a lead, you know, the official leads mm. account. But it, it I, I do still think that aren't they entitled to to reply? And I, I, I personally thought where it's where it's horrendously wrong was was people seeing it as an open invitation to abuse, and 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 jump on it. Now personally. I think that that highlights everything that's wrong with social media. Mm. So in no way am I uh, am I defending the kind of abuse then that she she got because I think, as I say, I think she's a great pundit, really interesting. But I, I, that for me is something we've got to tackle with with social media, and I think that part of the issue here is that we've seen more racist abuse aimed at the, the um, Bournemouth player, the, the junior Stanislaus, the, 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 this weekend. And what we're doing about it, basically, it, it feels like we're not we're not doing very much. I mean, as you, as you mentioned, you know, I, I, I've been abused, we've all been abused. And, and frankly, it almost feels like, oh, well, I've been abused, so what? And, like, no-one does anything about it. 
And I just think that that, for me, is the bigger issue because I feel as if if social media companies had done something about it and taken action, then I don't think that, that people jump on that tweet and reply to it in the way that they did. And therefore, you can have a bit of fun, you can have a re reply without it getting abusive. And yet, it what it turned out to be was anything but fun, anything but. And I think that that, that that is the disgusting nature of it. And I just think it comes down to, for me, highlights again the faults with social media rather than me thinking it was it was the it was the issue with with the Leeds tweet. I think the abuse suffered is totally unacceptable, but for years we've let it go by with no one showing any appetite to tackle it. And that's the real central point and and, and you're, yes. you're right to bring that up, John. Are we in danger, do you think, Seb, of almost a normalization of this sort of abuse and especially racial abuse? You know, the, the, it's almost a a, a daily, weekly occurrence these days, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Normalisation is probably the right word there, Mike, unfortunately, because I, I don't, I wouldn't claim to be an expert and I don't know what it is to obviously receive racist abuse, misogynist abuse, homophobic abuse. I, I, I don't have an experience of that. What I will say is that there seems to be this increasing I, I don't I don't even know how to describe it. It's just when something happens in football now, this is a place that people feel able to go. You know, before, if you wrote about football, if you if you spoke about football, if you described it, you had an opinion on it, it was, for whatever reason, it people felt entitled to abuse you, whoever you were. And that's just, you know, Crossy's obviously felt the, the Twitter pitch for many times. You know, anytime you report something that people don't like or you comment on a game which a team has lost and you 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 expose yourself to the ludicrous sensitivity of a lot of people. This new thing now is is really dispiriting because it feels like and anything that happens in the game is now, for some people, the green light to go and racially abuse somebody. Remember Stephen Bergwijn missing a chance at Anfield a couple of weeks ago, and he had to limit his social media accounts because people have been racially abusing him. That is ridiculous. And yet, and yet, and yet, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest. And that is a terrible thing. To, to, to both be shocked by something and to be completely unsurprised by the way people are behaving. That describes something that is really malignant and... Crossy's right. Like, there is not even close to being enough uh, recourse for these people because it's as if there, there's nothing to... I don't know, people just behave in this unguarded way and, and I, I don't want to hear anybody say that it's got anything to do with the, the, the pandemics. It hasn't because it predates that by a long, long time. And it's it's so dispiriting. It makes me... You know what? It, it hates me hate the game a little bit that it's full of it's become a theatre for people to behave like that. That somehow because your team didn't get the win that you wanted, or you know, they didn't score, you know, a player didn't take the chance in exactly the right way, or in this case, a player hit the inside of the post, you know, away from home, that all of a sudden that's now a green light to to behave like that. It, it's dreadful. It makes me hate the game. That the the game is that the game welcomes people like that. And it's an absolute disgrace. No, I, I see. I see no evidence whatsoever of any any kind of reasonable response to that. It's dreadful. Yeah, it's really sad to hear you speak like that, mate. I know that the issue of social media abuse is bigger than football, and that clubs in the main 
make positive use of the interactive platforms, charitable ventures, support things like local food banks. But we really need to challenge unnecessary tribalism. Now, something has to happen. I think all three of us agree on that because social media is out of control. Thanks in the meantime to John and Seb. And on a happy note, here's to another 300 episodes of the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.